Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. I am your librarian, Katrina. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I am reading through the enormous library of books you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think about it. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. Now, last week we read about Abraham Lincoln, and because I do try to get more than one side of a story, generally, uh, I decided to read about the other president in that conflict, making this week's book of the week, Embattled Rebel, Jefferson Davis and the Confederate Civil War by James M. McPherson. And the accompanying cocktail is allegedly Davis's favorite, which is an old-fashioned. Uh, one sugar cube, two to three dashes of bitters, two ounces of bourbon or rye whiskey, garnished with an orange peel and a maraschino cherry. So let's do this. Now, I was looking more for a complete biography of Davis, and this is kind of my fault. I, if I had read the description better, then I would have understood this is specifically a biography of the years of the Confederacy, or his years as the president of the Confederacy. So I'm going to fill in just some basic background information using that old stand by Google, but I'll keep the background to a bare bone so I can get to the book part quickly. So Jefferson Finnis Davis was born June 3rd, 1808 in Fairview, Kentucky to Jane and Samuel Davis. He was the youngest of 10 children and like a lot of younger sons, joined the army as a way to get ahead. His older brother, I believe Joseph, arranged for him to join the military academy at West Point, and as a result, Davis would favor West Point graduates all of his life. Now, as we learned during the review of Zachary Taylor's presidency, Davis was briefly Taylor's son-in-law, but the marriage lasted less than a year before Sarah Knox Taylor died. Um, I'm sorry, I guess it would be Sarah Knox Davis at that point died. However, in order to marry her, Taylor had to resign his military commission as Taylor denied uh, uh, Davis's request for Sarah's hand based on not wanting Sarah to have to live the life of a military spouse. So Davis resigns, gets a plantation in Mississippi, marries Sarah, Sarah dies, and Davis is a bit of a recluse for the next, I don't know, decade. In uh, 1845, he marries his second spouse, Verena Howell, who was at that time 18. For those of you keeping track, he was 37 years old at this point, so he was 19 years older than her. Not at all unusual for the times, not even the largest age gap for the second spouses. If you'll remember, John Tyler's second wife was 30 years younger than him. Get my bitters going here. So back to Davis. Well, it was probably a bit more than two to three dashes, but okay. Can muddle this together now. I'm gonna let that soak a minute, and then I'll muddle it. If you recall from Franklin Pierce biography, Davis was Pierce's Secretary of War. He was actually not of an unusual pick for that position. He had served in both the U.S. House of Representatives from Mississippi and as a senator from Mississippi and then his own military background. He was a colonel in the Mexican-American War under Polk's administration. And that's the short, short version of Davis's life up to this point. Now, November 6, 1860, Lincoln is elected president and South Carolina secedes immediately. And this is kind of where the book starts. At the start of the Civil War, Davis was once again serving as Senator from Mississippi to the United States Senate. Um, his term with per Pierce ended as Secretary of War, and then he was voted Senator, or elected Senator by the, the legislator of Mississippi, and so he was their, their Senator at the time. Mississippi did not secede until January 9th, 1861, and Davis was expecting it because, of course, he's kept in the loop. He's their representative to the U.S. Senate. Uh, but he waited until that official notification came in to resign from the U.S. Senate. And then about a month later, the convention that had been called from, to form the Confederate States sent word that they had unanimously voted Davis to be the provisional president of the Confederacy. Now, 
he did not want this. He, he, um, it, it's one thing, right, to, uh, stick with your state and resign from the U.S. Senate. It's a whole different kettle of fish to become president of a rebelling nation. I just, God, just asked George Washington, and I'm not comparing him to George Washington. I'm just saying any of the founding fathers, they all found themselves on the to be hung list if caught um, that was issued by the crown. So Davis accepted the position, but not necessarily willingly. So he accepts the position and pretty much because everyone knew this was not going to be a peaceful sign and wish you well. And that was pretty much it. He was like, well, they're going to need somebody who has some inkling of military matters. So I will do it because you guys nominated me and it would be cowardly to refuse. There are a whole list of websites out there to determine the best whiskey. I am just going with Davis and Stout because it's what I had on hand. I actually have like four or five different whiskeys. This was just the one I'm like, hmm, let's try that one. Good Irish whiskey. Let's see what happens. Da, da, da. Do I have to mix that? Add the whiskey. Fill the glass with ice and stir well. All right. Oh, you know what? I'm going to stir it with the muddler and then I get that sugar back. Yay me. Fill with ice. All right. Stir well carefully because I don't want to smash up the ice with the knife I used to get the uh, orange peel. There we go. The Confederates plan from the get-go was kind of uh, the best offense is a good defense. Sorry, the best defense is a good offense. I read that backwards. Did I type it backwards? Nope, I, read, I, I typed it correctly. The best defense is a good offense. So their plan, their entire plan was to take the war to the north. All right, drop this shit show on the north doorstep, let them deal with it, and if, we, if we're fighting it up there, we're not fighting it here on our own doorstep, and that's what they wanted. Well, mostly. So, and throughout the book, and I believe even back in the day, it was referred to as an offensive defensive strategy. And that was the plan, was let's, let's take this shit show to them. And it's not a bad plan overall, right? It's still problematic from the perspective of the North didn't want this on their doorstep any more than the South did. And so the North was... Kind of also like, well, let's fight it on their turf and not ours. Now, I am still unclear if either side actually wanted the war. I like to think not, although I'm sure on both sides there were people who were like, yes, we need to do this. Let's do this war. Let's war, guys. Let's war. But, I mean, from the start, it was like a big game of chicken, right? I mean, Fort Sumter in South Carolina became the standoff point. Davis was rightly worried that if he fired the first shot he'd lose the moral high ground and be seen as the aggressor but he did ultimately fire those first shots on april 12 1861 when lincoln attempted to resupply fort sumter have i had an old-fashioned before i feel like i had one with a twist but i don't remember the twist hmm it's okay i mean it's smooth so i guess i picked a fairly decent whiskey for it because it's it's smooth it's not burning but it's okay uh now shortly after those shots were fired lincoln called for troops to suppress the rebellion which led to four more states including virginia joining the confederacy and deja vu here from the lincoln book last week uh, not long after virginia joined the confederacy richmond was named as the capital of the confederacy which was located 109 miles south of dc the stage is now set for the two nations to basically play capture the flag right whoever gets catches the other's capital is going to be in a really strong position to win 
So, given that Davis had military experience, he was particularly frustrated by his generals. And, I mean, okay, we today have congressional oversight. If some serious military history goes down, then, of course, the generals today can be called to Congress to explain themselves. Back then, on both sides of the divide, the military personnel felt like they had a right to express disagreement with orders and to voice their opinion. And if the final order that came down went against their opinion, the generals on both sides were adept at sidestepping those orders and finding valid reasons not to obey them. Can you even imagine that today? <laughs> Can you imagine that today, seriously? Except for Grant. Grant pretty much was like, all right, you want me to do this? Into the breach, boys. And away he went, and he kicked major ass as a result of it. And there are many reasons that Lincoln loved Grant. But where Lincoln was, at least according to last week's book, more or less left alone to fight the war as best he was able, in the Confederacy, everyone was a critic. I mean, one of the sources that the author pulls from is a diary of a woman who was hypercritical of Davis, like didn't like him. Everyone, I'm sure there were people like that in the North too. They just uh, either didn't write it down or nobody has seen those sources. So it's just, it's a mess. Uh, now, additionally, the key differences between the United States and the Confederacy states is this. This is the key difference, not difference says, plural, difference. The Union referred back to a powerful central government. That's the beauty of the United States, right? Powerful central government. The Confederate states were basically individual fiefdoms, fiefdoms that referred the central power to the Confederacy rarely. That was what they intended with their version of the Constitution, which drew heavily on the U.S. version, but differences. And that was the initial plan, was each state is going to be on their own, we'll pull together in case of war, and that's it. But to ensure that the individual states remained individual fiefdoms did require that pull together, and they had a hell of a time doing it because each state believed their state was the most important to the cause and that Davis should order all troops to protect their states. And if he wasn't going to do that, they wanted their troops back so that they could protect their own states. So the, the troops in Tennessee, or the governor of Tennessee, wanted the Tennessee troops released back to Tennessee to defend Tennessee versus having them go over to Virginia, for example. So Lincoln didn't have those problems. He had problems, but Individual states bitching that he wasn't protecting them was not one of them. Whoa, cherry juice on my hand. Now, while the Union had General McClellan, the Confederacy had General Joseph Johnston. And while it took Lincoln to develop a disdain and dislike for McClellan, Davis seemed to have had a mutual dislike for Joseph Johnston from the beginning. There were two General Johnstons in that war, General Albert Sidney Johnston, who was one of Davis's favorites, and he was killed at the Battle of Shiloh. And then General Joseph Johnston was pretty much shoved down Davis's throat by, by Congress. <laughs> they all thought that General Joseph Johnston was the shit. Davis disagreed, but Congress kind of insisted and kept confirming Johnston, so here we go. Of all the Civil War generals Davis had, the only ones he liked were Bragg, Lee, and Albert Johnston. <laughs> and the rest were basically forced on him by the other political players. So I don't want to get too much into a lot of the maneuvering and the, the generals and the battles because in next, the next two weeks I'm reading a book specifically about the Civil War, which addresses these from all angles. So I'm going to try and pull this and not get into the two individual battles because I'm sure they'll be covered again. 
I imagine the switches and generals will be covered again. So let's now look at some of the similarities between them, right? The key difference being the central versus decentralized government. Both presidents did suspend habeas corpus, which is the, you know, meaning the requirement to provide a body, basically, which allowed for arrest on suspicion rather than the actual commission of a crime, all right? Which means if you are suspected of talking against the government, they will arrest you for treason, regardless of whether or not you've actually acted on that talk. It's fabulous. Remember, uh, during the book on President Pierce, where Secretary of State Seward actually questioned Pierce on his loyalty to the Union during the war? Yeah, that was part of that uh, chicanery. Hey, I can do it without swearing. Look at me adulting. So they both did this, but Lincoln suspended habeas corpus on his own authority as president. I am the guy in charge. I say that we can't risk having traitors in the house, so I am suspending habeas corpus, uh, which incidentally was deemed illegal by the Supreme Court. He just didn't care. He kept doing it. Now, Davis did not suspend this right without the authority of the Confederate Congress. So he made sure that everybody was on his side for that, at least, so he wouldn't get uh, harassed for it. Now, where President Pierce was harassed by Secretary of State Seward, Davis was a little more open-minded on that one. There were several former Yankees who had pledged loyalty to the Confederacy, now usually as a result of having married a Southern Belle, but Davis didn't ever look at them as potential traitors. In fact, quite a few of them were included as confidants, which did not go over well with the Confederate Congress and other critics. That, that actually made him seem really suspicious as the president to them, because, hey, how can he be buddies with these Yankees if he's fighting against the Yankees? So the, the South was very fixed in its prejudices in that case. But for all that, Davis was really hard to usurp. In November 1861, the Confederacy held their election, and almost everyone who started this brouhaha was elected to a full term, and Davis included in that. And in November 1861, he ran unopposed, so all of his critics just, you know, they were willing to criticize but not step up plate themselves, and he was elected to a full six-year term as president of the Confederacy with running mate Alexander H. Stevens. Uh, yeah, the Confederates wanted a six-year term of president, not four. Okay. Uh, and Davis truly was beset on all sides. I mean, hence the name Embattled Rebel, right? The generals gave him no end of grief, each assuming they knew the best tactic, while Davis, who also had experience, believed that he knew the best tactic. Um, Congress and all civilians felt qualified to criticize the ban. I, I mean, reading this, that word that came to mind was henpecked. Like, you can just picture this poor bastard sitting in his office receiving hate mail from everybody and just trying to do his best. Um, I don't necessarily like Davis, I just because, you know, never mind the book, and I did get some empathy for him during the war, but re doing that Google search for the background information, I was like, yeah, he's still not a nice dude. Uh, he, he, to the day he died, believed that, that black people were inferior because they were black, and that was the only reason why, and I'm like, mm, I got no sympathy for stupidity. That's all I'm saying. But he was henpecked. And he did the best he could under the circumstances. Uh, he was a bit of a micromanager. He would often call for like five hour long cabinet meetings every day, trying to plan for all contingencies, which you really can't do, Be, especially back then. I mean, today we get information on a dime, right? I mean, the internet's there, phone calls are there, something happens and boom, the person who needs to know knows about it. Wasn't so back then. They had telegraph, 
and that was a lot faster than the mail system that had to be used during the Mexican-American War, still way slower than today's news cycle. Now you add into this, Davis and the South truly did believe that they were fighting for their freedom to live their lives as they saw fit. Now that right included the right to own slaves, but the biggest problem, actually this led basically to the biggest problem the Confederacy seemed to have in securing their freedom, which was manpower or lack of it. Unquestionably, the Union was bigger both in landmass and in population. Uh, helped along by the Emancipation Proclamation, which allowed for blacks to fight in the Union Army, and the highly effective blockade the Union had in place on southern ports. I mean, no immigrants could ship to the south. They, by default, had to go to the northern cities. And then once they landed in the north, they were conscripted right off the boat as a condition of citizenship. Like, hey, welcome to America. If you want to stay, you're going to you know, go fight in the army and try and free black people. This incidentally led to race riots. That's not covered in this book. I know it from reading the Gangs of New York book 20 years ago. It just stuck with me because I was like, well, Hollywood got it wrong again. Shocking. They didn't have that influx of immigration in the South. It just wasn't possible because of the blockades. Now, as the Union troops started making advances and slowly encircling the South, the supplies ran low. It became very much like the the was a world was a World War One, World War Two book, All Quiet on the Western Front. They started running out of supplies. They started running out of men. Uh, between the inflation, because the Confederate dollar not backed by gold, and the U.S. dollar is only rarely backed by gold anyways, but the Confederate dollar had no gold, and so inflation was rampant, and there was a lack of supplies. The women started rioting, like literal bread riots, because they couldn't feed their families. And uh, towards the end, the South started conscripting the young and the old. So the people who before had been told, no, you're, you're still a kid, you're not going to fight, and the, and the guys who are, you know, over 50, and they're like, well, you've served your time, old man. Now they're like, no, we need you. They're, we just, we don't have enough bodies, we need soldiers, we need you here. Uh, it got so bad that Davis, even for like the last year of the war, considered offering slaves freedom in exchange for camp duties. I mean, he would never have dreamed of arming them, and he even said that when trying to explain his reasoning to Congress, that um, he needed the bodies, and that he did not feel that it was fair to have them <laughs> work as camp duties and not offer them freedom, so isn't that ironic? Um, he, he was voted down. Congress was like, no, we're not doing that. And the people of the South were like, no, we're not doing that. We're not, how dare you suggest we offer these men freedom for fighting? <laughs> it was just like, it worked for Lincoln, obviously. It worked quite well for him. They got quite a few troops out of it, but the South couldn't see past their prejudice long enough to, uh, I mean, they, they saw the trees, not the forest. Big picture, way beyond them. That's crazy. Civil War must have sucked. Yeah, I'm going to learn all about that. Apparently, August is my month to be depressed. I mean, last year it was the Gulag Archipelago. This year it's the Civil War. What can I say? August is just a good month to be depressed. Most people would pick, like, January. Oh, well. Now, ultimately, General Robert E. Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia on April 9, 1865, and the war was effectively over at that point. Um, there, there was still battles going on to the east. Uh, 
because of the, the essentially one of the armies in the east and i'm drawing a blank on the on the general's name because i'm ad-libbing now it's not on my script but he was more or less made plenipotentiary in the east he had full control because they were essentially cut off from the rest of the the, the confederacy but at that point the civil war is effectively over and there was some fighting that went on for a few more months before it was all done but signing but the, the treaties right now richmond had fallen to grant's army went right after was right before right after richmond fell when richmond fell davis started fleeing he spent two months fleeing south like ever south trying to evade capture because he knew he'd be tried for treason now he was ultimately captured on may 10th 1865 near irwinville georgia and he spent two years in a union prison before being released now i've i've heard various i've heard i i online they said that he was tried for treason if he was it was done in a closed court not an open court which would have been very much against the constitution which is why i'm inclined to think no it didn't happen because that back then that would have been pretty bad right now he was both so all sources i read agreed that he was released on a hundred thousand bonds hundred thousand dollar bond in 1867 that was in this book and on the online and uh he was released at that point the reason that that i'm inclined to agree that he was probably not tried is that a trial would have necessitated giving him a platform to explain the south's reasons for seceding because that pesky defense right that damn was it the sixth amendment yes sixth amendment so they denied him that platform by simply not trying him they they let him out on a hundred thousand dollar bond which was raised by supporters of his in the south now he did try several career arcs. i'm jumping out of the book again here because it pretty much covered just the civil war and then we came to a dead end so davis tried several career opportunities none of which worked out mostly because he refused to accept a position that was beneath a former senator and president yeah his marriage was now strained. Verena was not happy, and they frequently lived apart. She spent a few years living in Europe without him. He did go to Europe eventually. Ultimately, they both came back to live in the United States in Mississippi at a cottage that was gifted to him by an admirer, and he lived there until his death on December 6th, 1889. Um, this book was a concise rundown of Jefferson Davis's Civil War years. He said it's not a complete biography. Quite a bit of that was filled in from Google. So, and that's why I'm kind of like, mm, I'm not sure if how accurate that is because it's, it's not really cited, but, um, and that's, that's kind of my fault. Uh, I, not that the book doesn't cover his whole biography. The book is what it is. Um, it, it's, it, the book specifies that it was a strictly, strictly his civil war years. And if I had checked that and not just the page count when buying this book, I would have known it was not exactly what I was looking for. So that's my fault. I, I should have done a little more research before buying it. Um, but it was good because it, it, it didn't lionize him, which is what I would expect a biography written by somebody who is wholly sympathetic to the South, which is kind of what I would expect to see, right? I, it was very neutral. If, if you read a book by somebody who, who thinks the South is going to rise again, it's going to completely like just canonize him. He's going to be made into a saint. And you're going to be like, oh, okay, wow, this guy might have been pretty cool after all. And versus if, and if you read somebody who was absolutely pro-North, you're going to be like, this guy was the absolute devil. He was a piece of shit and he deserves to die in anonymity. And he deserved to have his uh, citizenship with the United States revoked and, and to die in poverty, which he didn't. He, he didn't die in anonymity. Clearly, he's very much still known. 
how could you not be? You were the leading charge of the other side. But McPherson did a pretty good job keeping it middle of the road and reporting just the facts of keeping his own opinion out of it. Now, he does say in the introduction that prior to writing this book, Lincoln was his favorite. And Lincoln, I think, still is his favorite because Jefferson was kind of a piece of shit. But he kept it neutral. And he reported just the facts. And, and you, you have empathy for the guy. It's, it's rough. It's rough being the guy in charge no matter what. Really rough when everyone hates you. It's a help me God made me feel a little bit of empathy for Trump because you know everybody hated him. And it humanized Davis. It's not a bad thing to, to realize that people are just human. Even people you heartily disagree with are entirely human. Um, it's all too easy to caricature the South as evil slave-owning villains who tried to destroy the American dream. But he was more than that. And while, yes, he was unquestionably on the wrong side of history, his reasons for him were entirely sound. And he thought he was right. And so did the rest of the South. Which is probably why the Civil War is still referred to as the War of Northern Aggression in the South. In some genteel southern locations. And that's it for this week. Um, the next two weeks are going to be Battle Cry of Freedom. Which is 864 pages long. Which is why I have to read it over two weeks. I kind of broke it dead in half. It's like 28 chapters. So I got 14 and 14. And that's what I'm working on. Uh, and we'll see how all of this ties together. Because... It's written by the same guy, James James M. McPherson. He he wrote Battle Cry of Freedom and he wrote Embattled Rebel. He probably wrote a book on Lincoln, but I'll bet you it was too long, which is why I went with the one I did. This was a good book. It, like I said, it, anything that makes you think about what the other side's perspective is, it's not just a knee-jerk reaction. There's a lot of knee-jerk reactions that are written. Sometimes I have the knee-jerk reaction, right? I can think of a couple of times I've had a knee-jerk reaction. Anyways, thank you guys for watching. I will see you next week when we start discussing the Civil War directly. Have a good week. Bye.